Welcome to another episode of Behind the Evidence AODH, a podcast supported by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. I'm one of our co-hosts, Mark LaRochelle, an addiction-focused primary care physician at Boston Medical Center. And I'm Honora Englander, an addiction medicine, hospital medicine physician and health services researcher at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Honora, can you give us a brief introduction on what we hope to do on Behind the Evidence? We seek to be an extension of AODH, a bi-monthly newsletter that summarizes the latest clinically relevant research on substance use and health. In this podcast, we'll engage with articles covered by AODH in a different format, including through author interviews to understand how the research came about and what are some of the most important implications. Excellent. Well, let's jump into today's episode. Today, we are delighted to be here with Dr. Ayana Jordan to discuss her piece recently published in Lancet Psychiatry entitled Racial and Ethnic Differences in Alcohol, Cannabis, and Illicit Substance Use Treatment, a Systematic Review and Narrative Synthesis of Studies Done in the USA. Dr. Jordan, thank you so much for joining us here today. Just to begin, can you introduce yourself to the audience? Yes, thank you for having me. It's really a a pleasure to talk about the work. I am a physician scientist and an addiction psychiatrist at NYU, and my lab, the Jordan Wellness Collaborative, really focuses on best ways to improve health outcomes for racial and ethnic minoritized people with mental illness and substance use disorder. Terrific. Thanks so much for being here. You know, this is just an enormous paper and an enormous contribution. And as I read your introduction and background, I was so glad to have the opportunity to talk to you to really dig in a little bit deeper to what is the question that you set out to explore and if you can help us explain to listeners why this is so important. Yeah, it's interesting because I, like many of us, have just been socialized to like read papers in the literature and take the results as is. And what I mean by that is as I began to really have a lens of equity in the papers that I read, I was seeing not only in addiction literature, but definitely in mental health literature more broadly, there was an emphasis on race as a reason why people were not benefiting from evidence-based treatments as opposed to racism. And that's a really important point because I think that many of us are researchers are well-intended, but we don't understand the complexity of how focusing just on race can further uh, oppress people, but also really shape how people who are not researchers understand the data, right? So if we blame someone's racial categorization for not benefiting, then they might not be able to, one, have the availability of that particular treatment, but then people might really believe, oh, we can't offer this to them because they are not going to benefit. And so there was one paper that was published in drug and alcohol dependence that, again, really failed to account for some significant covariance and why Black people particularly were not benefiting from a particular intervention. And I was like, I have to do something about this, right? I I just can't continue to read papers that say, because you are socially classified as this group, that you don't benefit. And so it actually ended up being a wonderful collaboration because I reached out to the authors and said, like, 
hey, can we talk about this? Like, I know that you think that this particular intervention doesn't work among Black people, but did you look at things like the effect of poverty? Did you look at things like where they live, how they're treated when they engage in the study, et cetera, et cetera? And we were actually able to collaborate on, on another paper to kind of look at some of those things. So I think just highlighting how we haven't been taught as researchers to really understand racism as a influencing part of the work really prompted this paper. And so I wanted to take a look. I wanted to say how many randomized controlled trials really looked at racism, right? And the ways that people are treated differently because of their race on substance use outcomes. And to see what do we know? Where are we starting from? And that started the project. I had no idea it would take me two years to do the systematic review, but it was really an inquiry of necessity and wanting to really figure out what we really know about substance use outcomes based on race while considering racism. Yeah. Well, Dr. Jordan, I'm so excited that you took that two years to do this because it's so important. <laughs> can you briefly, I don't know if you can summarize two years worth of work in, in a short podcast, but could you give us a, in, in a few minutes, tell us what you did and how you approached trying to do this? Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. Let me just say that this was really, truly a team effort and it was many folks and collaborators, biostatisticians and librarians and psychiatry resident, no, well, medical student who actually matched in psychiatry now, she just matched, Stephanie Quainu, who who all worked on it, and my late research mentor as well, Kathy Carroll. So what we did is we worked really closely with the librarian to really compile a list of all of the randomized controlled trials on substance use treatment ever published in the United States that focused on race or ethnicity, right? So we didn't look at what race or ethnicities they included. We just said if they did a RCT on substance use treatment and mentioned race, we started there and we compiled those um, articles. So we got a little over 5,000 articles, 5,204 articles that were on RC RCTs, uh, looked at substance use treatment, and we focused on non-nicotine substance use outcomes. So that's important. We focused on everything except nicotine. Then from there, we actually had two raters independently look at those 5,204 articles and looked at the title, the abstract, just to make sure that they fit our criteria in terms of initiation, retention, and if there was any change in actually substance use based on race and ethnicity. And from there, we actually excluded many of the articles and had 220 remaining articles that focused solely on our inclusion or exclusion criteria. If there was any disagreement in terms of what articles to, needed to be excluded, I actually was the one who looked at that and decided if it, it should be included or not. Another thing that I think is important for um, the listeners to understand is that we also assess the quality of the articles themselves. So once we got to those 220, we wanted to see were they rigorous studies? And we included them whether they were or not, but we wanted the reader to understand what was the actual quality of the study itself. And so that's in the paper, but I think that's important to know. 
And then from there, of the 220, we actually were able to get it down to those that actually met our specific criteria related to looking at substance use outcomes, either within racial ethnic classifications or across racial ethnic classifications. And so we were able to get down to 50. And from those 50, we further separated it by the different racial and ethnic comparisons. And boy, did we find some really interesting stuff. I'll just tell Dan, I had no idea. We Before we even started the systematic review, we all took a guess like how many RCTs in the literature, what we actually find that told us about substance use outcomes by race or ethnicity. And people had guesses from, you know, I don't know, 16 all the way to thousands. We didn't realize that we would get down to 50 papers total in the history of those done and published in the U.S. I, I was actually shocked by the small amount of papers that actually looked at substance use outcomes by race. Dr. Jordan, I'm so glad you highlight that. As I was reading the manuscript, I had the same reaction, which was what a small proportion. And also that 120 of the 220 full text articles, only 120 of them even included, or 120 were excluded because of not having an ethnic comparison. So even amongst the RCTs that were done, I I also found that really astounding. But but I want to ask you, what did you think were the main kind of the main takeaways or main findings and what surprised you in the research? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that we already hit on was just how few papers that there actually are in terms of looking at not just substance use outcomes, because we define that really broadly. Like we looked at initiation, we looked at engagement, we looked at days of use, et cetera. So we tried to be as comprehensive and inclusive as possible in terms of our endpoint. And even then there were only 50 papers. So I think that in of itself is how little is actually published was really, really important. I think the other thing that people have to understand is that when we even looked at those 50 articles, that there were actually only nine that actually had evidence of actual differences by race or ethnicity, right? So what does that mean? Is that we were able to break it down to those 50, those that looked like a that looked at a single minoritized group, whether they were Black or Latinx, those that compared across racial and ethnic groups. But when we were actually looking at differences based on those non-nicotine substance use outcomes, we only found nine that said, because this person is classified as this or that, that there were actually differences in their substance use. That's really powerful because I think that One, what that shows us is what is really accounting for those small differences that we see, if anything, and is it correct for us as researchers to think that a treatment might not work just because of how someone is racially classified? And if we're able to consider that our interventions could work for everyone in the rare cases that they don't work, what else is going on? So I I, I, I want to just kind of 
stay on that point for a little bit because I myself, I mean, we had no idea when going into us what we would find, but I was really shocked to find that out of the two largest minoritized groups in this country, Black and Latinx, looking at all of the randomized control trials that were done, that were only nine, starting with thousands that actually found differences based on race. And also what um, I talk about this paper is like when you look at those nine studies, all of them had significant, statistically significant baseline differences in the social determinants of health. So what does that mean? We measure things like access to insurance, housing, financial access, whether that be through socioeconomic status. And so in every case of those nine, there were baseline differences in the social determinants of health. And that really led to those significant differences we, we found in the, in the substance use outcomes. So again, really questioning I, is it, and we have to see, like, this is what we found, but how can we design our research trials to consider what may be influencing one's ability to benefit from the treatments or interventions that we do have? Is it because of the skin they're in or the cultural group that they belong to, or is it because of these upstream factors that as researchers, I never, I mean, I have a whole PhD, right? I never was taught to consider like institutionalized racism. If someone has access to quality healthcare or not, because of the group that they're racialized in, could that impact whether they benefit from treatment? Like I, that wasn't even a thing. You know, and 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 my and my studies, and how do we even integrate assessments of or proxy measures for racism? Which what do we use to look at that? Do we use that at, at everyday discrimination scale? Do we use a structural racism assessment? Like, what are the validated instruments so that we can get to those points? Is socioeconomic status a good enough proxy to look at finances or are there other points that we need to be considering? I mean, these are all of the things that I want us to really understand because at least in this paper, what we found is that it wasn't, well, I don't want to extrapolate too much, but what we found is that those who actually had differences, there were these baseline differences from the beginning that actually led to these statistically significant uh, differences in outcome. So I think that, and I, I don't want to be like a kumbaya moment, but really I think that we're more alike than we are different in terms of the humanity of who we are as people, understanding that the racial groups that we are put into really have social impact, right? There are real consequences, but it's not that somebody happens to be racialized as Black because we know that these things are made up. What makes them not susceptible to having benefit from a particular intervention, but because of the social classifications that they hold, 
they might not have access to all the environmental privileges and social privileges that someone that from a majority group would have access to, which is that thing is what's actually influencing treatment outcomes. Does that make sense? I hope so. It, it really does. It was a really excellent summary and brings up a lot of questions about how we move forward. And I'd like you to reflect on a, on a few implications. And, and I wanted to start with, maybe this is just asking you to reiterate, because I think you've already told us twice that these findings don't seem to support that we have clear differences and effect of how substance use treatments work based on someone's racial or ethnic group. Exactly. And, right. right. And so is there anything we can take away from this data on how we should or should not be treating people based on these socially defined groups? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the heavy hitter, right? That's the million dollar question is what do we do with this? And how do we further interrogate or conduct research that either rejects or supports this hypothesis where we are now, right? And so I think that one of the things that we really have to do, and this is a work in progress, I'd really try to do it in the lab, is really account for these co-founders, right? Thinking through how do we include baseline differences and control for them so that we're really approaching the research as as evenly as we can from a leveling playing field, right? So how do we include people from racial and ethnic minoritized groups into the work where there is sufficient power to actually not only ask, but account for those baseline differences? So for instance, I serve on study section now and I get infuriated, really, because the NIH had a mandate since 1992 that women and racial and ethnic minorities should be included in the research that we conduct at levels that can actually help us have some understanding of what's happening. We're now in 2023 and people still think it's okay to have majority white samples. So part of it is just like expanding the, the, the people in which you're studying to make sure that we are actually drawing from the entire population to know what works and what doesn't work. Because we can't even begin to think about, you know, baseline differences and all that if we're not adequately powered to look at racial differences. And we can't look at racial differences if 92% of the target population is white. So just starting from there, I know it sounds very elementary, but really making sure that we have a diverse sample of the population that adequately reflects the population that we're trying to study. And I'm not saying that there has to be a majority minority unless you work in a place where there is a majority minority. So places like, you know, on the coast and New Mexico and California, things like that. I, I just can't accept the study in places like that where you continue to have a majority white population because then I don't really know. 
So that's one, is making sure that the research that you do adequately reflects your target population. And I know that sounds so simple, but the mandate itself has not led to appreciable differences in terms of who is included in the research. I think then the question begins, well, okay, people always say, Dr. Jordan, that sounds good, but like we really try, <laughs> we, we, we have our cabs, you know what I mean? Like we have our community advisory boards, we have flyers where non-white people are on the flyer, like we've done all we can do, like they just don't want to come and because of Tuskegee, like they don't want to be involved. And I'm like, okay, okay, guys. Yes, and right? Like all of that is true for sure. And I don't want to, um, and I'm speaking a little cheeky now, but I get this truly time and time again, like, what was I, what can I do? Like, they don't want to come. And then is it from Fill the Dreams? Anora and Mark, help me. Is it if you build it, they will come? Yeah, but, keep it. Yes. Yes. So really thinking about, okay, there are organizations, there are labs that really have been able to capture not only majority minority populations, but sustain them in studies in a way that is beneficial. So we have to say, okay, how can we uplift people like, and I want to put these scholars because I don't think that they get their due. People like Kathy Berlew, people like Latrice Montgomery, who a lot of the articles that were published in the RCT were actually from their groups. How do we put forth people who are known to Camilla Venner really work with racial and ethnic minoritized populations in a way that not only they recruit in masses, but are also able to conduct trials over time? So building relationships with communities of color in a way that is satisfactory so that they will want to engage in the research. So that means that there has to be a significant investment. And I really do think about it as an investment into the community and what you're trying to engage. So that just can't mean that you come around when it's time to conduct the trial. And I'm not saying that everybody has to be a community engaged researcher. That's the type of research that I do because I think it's a way to mitigate the inequity that I see in these communities. But what I am saying is that in the way that we know that you have to have someone do your analysis on the study or you have to have the IRB look at your work, there has to be upfront an investment in thinking, what are the community-based organizations that we're going to work with over time and form relationships with to be able to capture the populations that we need to be involved in the work so that we can all benefit. So that means like actually understanding that it's not just Tuskegee that has led to, you know, some of the mistrust that a lot of racial and ethnic minoritized communities face, but there's actually current, right, maltreatment that make understandably people from these minoritized groups very fearful of engaging with researchers, right? So having to think about, okay, what are truly, what are the groups in my community that successfully work with racial and ethnic minoritized groups? 
how can I form a relationship even before I get the grant to explain to them why research would even be beneficial. This is the type of work that I do. This is what I'm interested in. What are you interested in? What are our shared values and how can this be a working relationship? I can't tell you how few researchers actually do that. And then they like want to consult and pay me all this money. I'm like, no, use that for the community-based organizations or the nonprofit organization to see how might they benefit just from that small line item to, to have the conversation, truly. And then thinking about scholarship. So I always say, how can we as researchers who I know we think we don't have a lot of privilege, <laughs> it's like we're not getting paid the big bucks, like I get that. But understanding that just the fact that we get paid for scientific inquiry and we don't have to worry about like where our next meal comes from and all that, like that's privilege, right? So how can we use our privilege to dig a little further and understand what is happening now in our communities that might make people more hesitant to wanna to engage in research? And I say one book that I have read so many times and I would like to put forth to the researchers and other listeners is Medical Apartheid. Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington. It is one of the books that so expertly and really exquisitely go over medical research and, and, and the harm that it's caused. And the reason why I put that out there is because I think that that can provide a lens for how to have conversations. One, so that folks from racial and ethnic minoritized populations understand that you understand why they might be hesitant, but also starts to really consider how do you not repeat some of the mistakes in your own research. So really thinking about that article in DAD that really sparked this whole thing is how do we even write and communicate in a way that we don't say Black people don't benefit from this because of that without actually accounting for the nuances that we know impact Black people, right? So how do we really even communicate amongst ourselves and hold the scientific community to more of a standard that says we can't continue to say things that we really don't know if we haven't looked at all of the factors that impact these racialized groups. Because when we say stuff, it impacts how people receive the data and what they do with it. Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Jordan, right there, like, I, I think this is a, a question I have. So let's say we, we've got a study where we are, we've partnered with our communities, we've, we're feeling good about recruiting a sample with a good distribution by race and ethnicity. And you just brought up this really good point is that that's only part of the way there, right? Because we have to be able to account for what might, you know, let's say we find a difference, right? And so the challenge of being overwhelmed, and you mentioned all kinds of instruments and lack of standardization for how do we measure social determinants of health, what's good enough and what should we do? 
How have you handled that in your work? And what are your thoughts moving forward as you do your work about as a researcher, how you might do that? And hope, hopefully, as we start to move this, people just don't avoid it because it's overwhelming to think about and how to include it. And 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 I wonder if maybe we get to a point where we move beyond, you know, you know, if we want to stratify or recruit samples based on these socially defined groups of race and ethnicity, and maybe we're going to focus more on recruiting based on variation in social determinants of health and these structural issues, right? And so, right, and, and but I don't know yeah. if we're there yet, right? And like, we're what's going to help us get there? And how is any tools or things you can point us to? And maybe it's just doing something to not be stuck, right? And and perfect may not be the, and it may be the enemy of the good here, right? You you can't do every instrument in every study, but yeah. what have you thought about how do we capture this information? Yeah, Mark. Oh my gosh, you're listening. Yes. So right, the 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 arc is that we definitely want to get to not looking at differences just based on race alone, but actually those differences in the social determinants and how people have been differentially impacted by race. Got it. Like that's the end goal. But you're right, we're not there yet. Doesn't mean that we can't work towards it. What do we do in the meantime? I always say do something. So it can't be like, I have this when I give talks and just bear with me, listeners, bear with me where I have a person who is just like stuck in the mud and is so overwhelmed by like all of the things that they have to study that they just don't move forward. And so what I really recommend is start somewhere. I'm not saying that you have to be a racial justice researcher <laughs> off the bat, but really think about how can you work with your sociology departments in your institutions and with your public health departments, population health departments who have been studying race, ethnicity, and the social determinants before it was like a buzzword. So practical things. I actually, I have an appointment in the Department of Population Health at NYU because I liaise with social epidemiologists and public health experts who have been thinking about this and can say, Ayana, like Maria Khan has said, use this instrument to look at the social determinants because it has been validated. I would have known that because that's not how I was taught. That's not the, how I was socialized. But it also prevents me from having to reinvent the wheel because they already know. So one way is to really think about what are the ex that already exist within your institution that you can collaborate with because I'm not asking you to be the expert, but what I am asking you is actually to include that in the research design so you can look at it. That's one. Another thing is many of us, you, let me just start. You don't have to be an NIH funded investigator to be able to use or access tools from the NIH. That's really important because I didn't realize that but thank goodness I was involved in a program that helped me to see. So the NIMHD, the HEAL initiative, they have so many free workshops and also scientific officers that if you book an appointment with them, they will actually provide advice and look at your study and say, okay, this is the instrument that we think you should use from our centralized database of every single NIH funded investigator that has to upload their assessment to the centralized database. And they can tell you, we think you should use this. And it's been a, a tremendous. 
And thinking about my assessment packet, I've actually done that, right? So then really saying, how can that be a part of the strategy before you're even designing the study, understanding what, what tools you may not even know that you need to ask and having that consultation from you know, we all pay our taxes so that people who are getting funded to be able to do that. So liaising with the NIH, particularly for me, HEAL and NIMHD, but other institutes that might be salient to your work that can help with that. And then I always go back to thinking through organizations that you really may not even know, like the ACOMA project is like, this is what AI, artificial intelligence, Google can be your friend, where you can just put in a few keywords like equity research in addiction and different labs will come up who do this. And I just want to re uh, again uplift Dr. Breland, Dr. Alfie Breland Noble, because she leads one of the most robust research groups that look at specifically youth of color and have access to all types of validated instruments that I just would have never known. Like what? Because she's not part of the academy in a way that, you know, she's more community-based. So that again is another way to see who is doing this work and has been doing it, but it may not have rise to your consciousness because they're not a part of the academy. And how might you liaise with them as a co-I to really help you? So I hope, Mark, that helped. But really thinking about doing something, it's, it's just unacceptable. I mean, really, it's unacceptable for us to be in 2023, for us to see what we all saw with our own eyes, the world saw the assassination of George Floyd and think that we can continue at the status quo. No. People are treated differently based on how they're classified. And as researchers, we have a responsibility to see if those differences account for how people are impacted by our intervention. Like, that's it. We have to do something. Yeah. Because it impacts us, right? Like, we've been studying disparities and it actually hasn't gotten any better. So what we're doing is not working. And I really want to know what can we do? As an addictionist right now, I'm like, this is wild. We continue to lose people. How can my research offer a way of understanding what interventions may work to help save lives truly? So you don't get me to preaching, but I'm serious here. You know, do something. And I hope that those practical things can help because sometimes you go to talk and you're like, okay, this is good, but what can I do? And I think those are some things that you can really do and things that we do in our lab. Dr. Jordan, your words and messages are just so compelling and and so promising and, and necessary. Thank you. You know, as, as we wrap up, we're really interested to know for you and your work, what are the next steps from your findings in this paper? And sort of tell us what's next. What, what are we, uh, what are we looking out for here? Oh <laughs> and my the, we know the sky's the limit for you. <laughs> oh my God. Please, please, please. I am really, 
thank you for asking that because part of it, like when we when we <laughs> when we started out with this systematic review, I was just like, guys, wait, I just have to finish this. Like I was so tired, I couldn't even think of what's next. So I'm excited to be at a stage where the work is out there and really consider what's next. So for us, what we're really focusing on is highlighting some of the people that I mentioned who's actually doing the work. So of those 50 studies that were included in the manuscript that actually looked at substance use outcomes by race or ethnicity, who contributed to that work in terms of what is the characteristic? What institutions did they come from? What is their racial and gender makeup? And I'll give you a peek. We're working on this right now, but okay, okay. Before I tell you, what do you all think in terms of who do you think is contributing to the scholarship of what we do know? It's not enough, but in terms of the gender and racial makeup, who do you think is doing the work? I mean, black women probably, but that's my that's my guess. I, I don't know. I'd love to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Women by far are the majority of folks who are, and we looked at that by looking at first and last authors. So who is either, you know, primarily responsible or providing the funding? Women, by far. Hmm. Now, the question is about who is, what is the racial or ethnic makeup? And we're still trying to parse that out, but we were really, we had the foresight to actually ask everybody that we got the 50, what do you identify as? Because how else would we know? We can't just base on like people's names or pictures. And so what we're finding so far is that it is mostly white women. Now that is not, that might seem counterintuitive, but if I put it in the larger context of who gets funded to do research, and we know this from papers that have been you know, published since 2011, most recently this year with JAMA, showing that most people who are published from the NIH are actually not from racial ethnic minoritized groups. So what that tells me is that the people who are contributing in terms of secondary analysis tend to be black women, but the opportunities that they have to capture the data often come from white people who get the resources to do the work in the, in the first place. So we want to put that out there and we want to have a call for action for the NIH to be more focused on funding different types of people to do this work, right? But also encouraging people who are not part of the demographic of white women to really step up and look at how they do research and who's included in the work. Brilliant. That's really, that's really fantastic. Really, really just appreciate your laying out a roadmap for how we can do better at these big institutional systematic ways, because as you more than anyone knows, that is how we can shift the dynamic for 100%. the people that we are hoping to serve. A hundred percent. That's it. Right on. Yep. Dr. Jordan, we cannot thank you enough for being here, for sharing with us your your vision, your energy, your brilliance, and and your 
really incredible work. Yeah, what a pleasure. Before we wrap, I wonder if maybe I'll just briefly summarize some of the main take-home points for our listeners, and please kind of correct me if I if I got anything not quite right or modify it. Absolutely, I'd love that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot to digest, and my my brain feels like it's brimming, but I'll give it a go. Uh, so I would say one of the really surprising things was that of the thousands of studies that you looked at, there were only 50 studies that met your inclusion criteria. And that looking at race and its effect on substance use treatment initiation or initiation engagement and treatment is an understudied area. And that alone is a call to action. But then among those 50 studies, there were only nine that showed differences by race and ethnicity. And all of those studies had significant differences in baseline social determinants of health, really begging the question, what is driving these outcomes? And should we be, how do we reframe our studies to look at race, but really to look at racism and look at the other social determinants that are influencing meaningful outcomes? And then in terms of implications, I was so struck by your comments about really thinking about how do we more broadly engage a population of people to participate in our research studies that reflect the target population in our communities and in the communities that we hope to serve. And so in order to do that, we should really learn from and model after teams that are doing this effectively. And you named a handful of teams that really are shining stars and and kind of models for us to to learn from and follow. And I think then I'm also just so struck by the your final comments about where this goes for you and really looking at those groups of, of researchers and who are they and how do we support them and how do we lift them to be bigger, brighter and, and support all of us to do this work better. Amen. You got it. Oh my goodness. I hope the listeners get it. I'm so happy. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I mean, right on. Truly. truly. Perfect. Perfect. This feels like a really wonderful contribution to Behind the Evidence. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ayana. hosted by Honora Englander and Mark LaRochelle. Production by Raquel Silviera. Editing by Casey Calver. Music and cover art by Mary Tomanovich. Miriam Kamarami is the medical director of the Graken Center for Addiction and co-editor-in-chief of AOD Health, together with David Filene. Learn more about AOD Health and subscribe for free at www.aodhealth.org. Behind the Evidence is supported by the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center. It is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities.